Good morning, everyone. Uh, so this week's lesson is going to be a continuation of um, what's going to be a, a series of lessons that was began uh, last week. Um, there were a couple lessons that were based on worshiping in spirit and in truth in John chapter 4, where Jesus, even in the context of John 3 and 4, really establishes some very fundamental, very essential truths of the importance of understanding our relationship with God and how to handle our, our connection with God, our fellowship with him. Jesus told the woman at the well very famously uh, that those who worship God must worship him as he is in spirit and in truth. And so we talked about the importance of treating worship with the importance that Jesus did and really following the model, not only of his example, but his words to the woman at the well. And in understanding the nature of worship, obviously with that comes understanding the nature of the church. And so we're going to be looking at the relationship between the universal and the local church this morning. And I just wanted to read, before we talk more about this, um, just very quickly, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, verses um, 19 through 21. And here Paul is telling the Thessalonians, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. God is always calling us to be more studious with his word, to be better students of his word, to be more diligent students of his word. So in studying these things out, um, one of the hopes is that this will elicit more thought outside of just the lesson itself. And there may be better ways to word some of these things or even visualize them. And so if you have any ideas about maybe there was something that could have been said differently or visualized differently, you know, I'm very, I'm very open to that. You know, the goal is that, you know, we would be very good students, very humble students of God's word, where we should appreciate the opportunity to be able to not only study things ourselves, but even explain them to our neighbors. And, and that's one of the goals of this lesson very practically, is it's not only important, obviously, for us to understand what the Bible has to say about the church but it's important to understand it in a way where we can help to clarify things for those in the world who may misunderstand these things or misapply them. So just by way of review, just a few things, very simple. The Bible uses the word church. The Greek word for church is ekklesia. That's the, really the root word that church is translated from. And in the Bible, this word church doesn't mean building. It doesn't mean a group of groups. It doesn't mean institution. Church literally means a gathering of citizens or a gathering of people who are called out from their homes into some place, an assembly. So when the Bible uses the word church, think of that as the definition, that church is not a building, church is not a verb, it's not a, an event that we go to, it's simply people. And it's a noun that refers to a group of individuals. Another thing that can be kind of difficult just with the modern way of thinking about this word is in the Bible, ecclesia or church is not always of necessity used in a religious context. So we looked at the book of Acts in chapter 19 last week in verse 32, 39, and 41 that this word ecclesia was used to refer to a riotous crowd of people. It was used to refer to a city council and a crowd of people so ecclesia or church is not necessarily a religious word. Again, it's a word that refers to a group of individuals who have come together for a purpose. And you can think about it, people at college campuses, they assemble or in a sense churches gather 
in college classrooms. Everybody is coming together to learn or to be together. You can even think that people come together for a lot of different purposes. Whenever people are called out together as a group, in a sense, they fit the definition of church. And it's very helpful just in terms of having clarity of what that word means to understand just by definition, it simply means a group of people. And it depends on the context to determine the nature of that group and why they are together. So just again, by way of review, last week we looked at how Jesus' church, Jesus' group, in the Bible is referred to in two important ways. You have the universal church, or rather the worldwide church. Remember in Matthew chapter 16, in verse 18, Peter confesses Christ to be the Son of God. And Jesus says, on this rock I will build my ecclesia, my group, my people. Jesus would build his people. Not a building, not an institution, but he would build his people. And he's using that in a very universal sense, that wherever somebody is, when they are baptized into Christ, they put Christ on in salvation, they are added to his universal body as a part of his church. But then obviously there's another way. So in Galatians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul wrote letters to churches. And even in Galatia, Paul would write in Galatians chapter 1, verse 2, to the churches of Galatia. So obviously there aren't multiple universal churches, but there are certainly multiple local churches. So the church is referred to both in a universal or worldwide sense, and then the church is also referred to in a geographically localized sense. And so in the Bible you have churches in Corinth, Galatia, uh, Philippi, Philadelphia, Sardis, etc., etc. And this is important because most problems in understanding the nature of Jesus' church really stem from really not recognizing the distinction between these two different ways that God's church is organized and the way it functions. And not just theoretically, what I mean by that is most problems in understanding the nature of the church in its practice, in its worship, in its design, in its leadership, all of that in so many ways relates to really not understanding the distinction between these two categories of reference. And these are not difficult things. We talked about last week that really in Scripture, the church is presented in great simplicity. And so I asked the question last week, who did Jesus often have most difficulty teaching? Was it those where he was starting from scratch and teaching all anew? Or was it those where they had stacked so many false religious ideas that now Jesus had to try to unpack these ideas. And really, it's the latter who Jesus had the most difficulty with. People like the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, people that had so many ideas that they had associated with God that were false ideas, it was difficult to let them go. And so that's really the difficulty of the subject, is in the world, there are so many wrong ideas about the church that when we see the simplicity of what the Bible has to say, it's not difficult because it's simple, it's oftentimes very difficult because it means that now we have to let go of wrong ideas that we've had. So I'd encourage you just be thoughtful about these things, study them out, and, and if there's anything that you may disagree with or we've come to a different conclusion, let's, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it patiently and gently. So just by way of illustration, um, this is again still review. Last week we were looking more at the universal church. And just to put it plainly, the church is obviously not 
denominations. But the question is, why? Why is, why is the church not the Pentecostal, Presbyterian, Catholic, Lutheran, Baptist, etc., etc.? A lot of times I've heard people say, the church today is just, it's so divided. The church needs to come together. What they're saying is the, the Presbyterian church, the Pentecostal, all of these different groups really need to put aside their differences and they just need to come together as one. But that's a fundamental misunderstanding of the church. So why? Well, the church by definition is not a group of groups. Church by definition is a group of people, not a group of groups. Church by its very definition is not an institution. It's not an institution that we uh, are devoted to. It's, it's simply, it's people. And so church by definition is not an institution or even a group of different institutions. Church by definition is anti-denominational. It's not that we as a local church here are non-denominational. It's that the church in the Bible is an anti-denominational thing, right? And you see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, denomination is by definition simply making categories, right? You remember in 1 Corinthians 1 where Paul was addressing the Corinthian church that some were saying, well, I'm of Paul. Well, I'm of Apollos. Well, I'm of Cephas. And what they were doing, they were beginning to categorize themselves differently. And Paul is saying, that's not the nature of things in Christ. The category of all Christians is simply Christ. And again, what Paul is urging them is, let it be as simple as God has called it to be. Now, here's a misunderstanding I have had in my past, right? And so I think this can be challenging. The local church is also not composed of local churches of Christ. Whether they be sound congregations or whatever, the name that we have on the board outside isn't meant to associate us with a denominational church of Christ. It's simply meant to be a description of who we are striving to be, that we are people who belong to Jesus. And so for the very same reasons that the church is not denominations are actually the same reasons why local churches, even if they're sound, are also not the universal church. So again, the church is not a group of groups. The church is not an institution or even a group of institutions. There's no church of Christ doctrine. There's no church of Christ way of doing things. There is simply what the Bible teaches and what we need to do according to scripture. And so sound congregations are also not the universal church. Individual people are the universal church. It's also not composed of people dedicated to the church. And this can be challenging because we want to clarify misunderstandings in the world, but we're also at the same time, we're not converting people to the church, right? Um, and why is that? Well, the church is not who or what saves us. Jesus is the one who saves us. The church is also not the mediator between us and God. It's not us, church, Jesus, God. It's simply God's people through Jesus are mediated then to him. So the church is also not our mediator. Um, again, some people will say things like, you know, so-and-so has fallen away from the church or we need to restore this person to the church. But people don't get restored to the church, they get restored to Jesus. And that may involve needing to be reunited with God's people, but ultimately the goal is our fellowship is primarily with Jesus. So in Acts chapter 2, here's what we see and what we saw in the reading. If you want to turn there, Acts chapter 2. Um, Acts chapter 2 is really just, it's such a significant chapter. It's really difficult to even overstate the importance of what happens in Acts chapter 2. 
the prophets and their prophecies of the new covenant and the kingdom of God that was coming. In Acts chapter 2, we see these things coming to fruition. And Peter even references that in verses 16 through 21. That, for instance, the prophet Joel said, It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. And in verse 21, in this time, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so Peter defines, well, who is that Lord? How do we call on them? And why do we need to be saved? And so in verse 36, he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, that is Jesus, Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So who is the Lord? It's Jesus. Why do you need to be saved? Because you've crucified him. And in verse 37, they ask the key question, because they need to now call on him to receive salvation. And so they, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So notice in verse 38, repent and each of you. And so Peter is encouraging them that each of you individually needs to come to a conclusion that you need salvation from Jesus. You need to call on his name for salvation. But how do you do that? By repenting of sin, being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and thus receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now look at 39 through 41 here. For the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. With many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Let me ask you this question. Added to what? What were they being added to here? Look at verse 47 of the same chapter. It's the last verse of the chapter praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So in verse 30 or 47, they were being added, your translation may even say, to the church. The Lord was adding to the church, to their number day by day those who were being saved. God was adding individuals to Jesus, to the universal body of believers who have fellowship with Jesus. And this is a church that this, this may um, sound strange, but one of the things we'll look at next week when we look at distinctions between a local and universal church, God is the one who adds to the universal church. I've heard it said by someone in kind of a clever way, you cannot join the universal church. God adds you to the universal church. We do not dictate, oh, well, now I'm in the universal church. No, God dictates who is in the universal church. And so God is the one who adds, in verse 47, to the universal body of those in fellowship with Jesus. So the universal church, the yellow line, is really just illustrating fellowship. And those circles are individuals who are in fellowship with Jesus. And Greg, Stan, Mary are going to be our example. Now, the local church, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 46. The, the local church is composed of individuals who are willingly involving themselves in fellowship of common identity and common work. That's what we see with Jesus' church locally. 
Look at verse 42. After they had been added to the universal body of Christ, right? They were in fellowship with Jesus now and saved. They were baptized into Christ. Then in verse 42, so then, uh, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. It's not that they were being forced to involve themselves with each other in this way. It's that they were choosing to willfully involve themselves in fellowship of one identity and of one work, common identity and common work. So to illustrate this, I put this yellow portion in the middle of the circles to illustrate this common work that they're joining themselves to. And the orange circle on the outside is the common identity that Jesus will refer to a local church as one. But what we'll see illustrated in the letters to the churches is as Jesus addresses churches as one, there is still individuality within that local church. And we'll, we'll see that. So common identity and common work, and they're willfully involving themselves in these things. So for the rest of the lesson, I'd really just to look at this illustratively, um, try to visualize this. And again, if you feel like there may be a better way or a different way of visualizing this, I'd be, I'd be very open to that. So um, I'd love for this to create more conversation. So we have Greg, Stan, and Mary here, and we'll say that these are three people who are devoting themselves to their common identity and common fellowship in Christ, and these are three people who universally are in fellowship with Jesus as well, and we're going to see different Christians associating together in different ways with Jesus and one another. First, the universal church includes not just Greg, Stan, and Mary who are living, but turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Verses 14 through 17. The point of this is the universal church also has those who are in Christ who are not physically alive. They're spiritually still alive, but not physically. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 14 through 17. 14 through 17. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. So does death change somebody's universal fellowship with Jesus. It doesn't. Somebody dies in the Lord, then they're with the Lord. But that is a difference between the universal and local church. Does death change our, our local relationship with one another? Well, it, obviously it does. These were Christians who were no longer able to be involved with the Thessalonian church, obviously, but they were still in Christ. So death may change and does change our local fellowship but death does not change universal fellowship. Well, let's look at a couple examples of churches. So let's look at the church in Corinth here. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. So local churches are obviously not perfect. You have people who are striving to work together, to have common identity, common work together, but 
a big part of that, that work is really strengthening and enlightening one another to the condition of our universal fellowship with Christ. And mistakes locally can be made that those same mistakes in a universal sense, Jesus will not make those mistakes, but we may. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Again, the church at Corinth, Jesus refers to them as one in the beginning of the letter. But in chapter 5, it reads, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So the Corinthians were continuing to have fellowship with this person that Paul's writing about in 1 Corinthians 5. So here's the question. Was this individual in fellowship with Jesus universally, even though he was in fellowship with the Corinthians locally? He wasn't. And so Paul is urging the Corinthians that what they needed to do was they needed to act on the universal reality of this person's relationship with Jesus, which was severed by his open sin. And he was telling them, you've made a grave mistake. You're in fellowship together as a church with somebody that Jesus is no longer in fellowship with universally. So part of our work as a local church is we need together to strengthen the universal reality of wherever we are um, in our relationship with Jesus. And a big part of a local church is accountability. We need that accountability. And we pursue local fellowship when we value our universal fellowship with Jesus. So again, a local church can make mistakes. Jesus, the, the reality was, this person had already been severed from Jesus. And they had to act on that. A local church may make mistakes Jesus does not make mistakes universally. Look also at the church in Sardis in Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. And in the context in Revelation, Jesus actually speaks directly to seven different churches. But I want to look at, as an illustration of the universal and local, let's look at Sardis, the first church that's spoken to in Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. So again, just trying to visualize this. Obviously, like, so in Corinth, there were more than three people in the church of Corinth, right? But just by way of illustration, you have three people being illustrated on the board 
And of those three, you have one who's not in fellowship with Jesus and two who are. Just again, to illustrate the issue at Corinth that there was this one person that they needed to disassociate themselves from locally. So in Sardis, you have five people. I know it can be hard to make out that it's five with circle, circle, circle. But this is five people. And just by way of illustration, you have two people who are in fellowship with Jesus still. But the church at Sardis, the majority of them, what was their condition? Notice back in chapter 3 of Revelation, verse, verse 1, the last thing Jesus says is, you are dead. And so again, Jesus speaks to them as one. This is a local church. They have a common identity and common work together. The majority, and so much of the majority is dead, that Jesus can just speak to them all and say, look, you're a dead church. But, in verse 4, but you have a few who have not soiled their garments. So within this local church that Jesus says is dead, there are still a minority of people who are in fellowship with Jesus still. And he says, these people, I see them and they are worthy. So sometimes a majority of a congregation could even potentially be out of fellowship with Jesus while a minority are still striving to humbly and faithfully work. Can you imagine how awkward and difficult a position that was for these few? And think, what were they supposed to do in that group? You know, there comes a time when it's apparent in Scripture that when a church is obstinately falling further and further away, there's a time to draw a line and say, you know what, we can no longer associate together. But Jesus, with this church, said, repent. And this few we're going to need to help that process happen, right? So a few were a part of this church who were saved. So again, as an illustration on the board, the church was still considered one. They were still involved with each other as one in this common identity and common work. But within that congregation, there was still individual emphasis on those who were still in universal fellowship with Jesus. And the, the nature of their work was they needed to bring to reality the universal reality of their relationships with Jesus locally. And that was a big part of their responsibility, right? So I want to look at some more individual examples here. A um, couple of them in the book of Acts, if you want to turn to Acts chapter 9. And this is just going to, again, emphasize the, the priority of our individual devotion to Jesus and our fellowship with him. Paul in Acts chapter 9, verse 26. Acts chapter 9, verse 26. Acts chapter 9, verse 26. At the beginning of this chapter, Paul is persecuting the church. Jesus appears to him on the road to Emmaus. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Uh, back in verse 4. And Peter is taken, or Paul rather, who is Saul at this time, is taken in verse 10 to Damascus to meet Ananias. And Ananias, when he meets Paul, he tells Paul in verse 17 through 19, says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you in the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in verse 18, and immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. So then Saul, who had become Paul, goes on to begin preaching about Jesus. But in verse 26, he eventually comes to Jerusalem. 
And when he gets to Jerusalem in verse 26, he was trying to associate with the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. So here we have Paul, who by every standard, I think we can clearly see that Paul is indefinitely in universal fellowship with Jesus, right? But was the church allowing him to have local fellowship with them? You know, in this context, for a period of time, before Barnabas took Paul and stuck up for him to the Christians here, Paul was not able to have local fellowship with Christians, but was he still in universal fellowship with Jesus? He was. So I want to clarify very quickly. Here's the conclusion that we're not coming to in this. We are not going to come to the conclusion that it's okay for a Christian to be an island of themselves. What we're going to see in these examples of individuals who even when they didn't have local fellowship, these were individuals who were still pursuing local fellowship, but they just weren't able to have it for a time for things that were out of their own control. And so Paul for a time was simply not able to have the fellowship that he desired to have with the Christians in Jerusalem. But again, Paul was still in universal fellowship with Jesus, but he was pursuing local fellowship. The reason I clarify that is there's a very modern, and it may have just have always been around, but I hear quite a bit, uh, just when I'm, when I'm talking to people, a lot of things that are said related to the fact that Christians don't need a local church. You know, it's totally good for us to be on our own and, you know, the, the people are the church, so therefore wherever a person is, they are the church and local churches, take it or leave it. That's not what you find in the Bible at all. That's, that's simply an erroneous way of thinking that does not come from knowing Jesus or knowing the scriptures. Those who know Jesus, they pursue fellowship willingly with other Christians. So I just want to clarify that that's the direction we're not going in we're not saying that individuals isolated on their own are content enough to stay there. Let's look at another example. The eunuch in Acts chapter 8. So this may be even in the same page of your Bible. There's a eunuch from Ethiopia in Acts chapter 8 who had traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate one of their festivals. And as he was traveling back to Ethiopia, Philip was told by God to go up and to meet this Ethiopian eunuch and teach him the gospel. And so he goes to the, to the chariot and he hears the eunuch reading the prophet Isaiah. And when he gets to the chariot in verse 30, Philip ran up and uh, heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? He invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they went up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but he went on his way rejoicing. So the eunuch 
Uh, again, he was baptized into Jesus. This is now a person who is in universal fellowship with Jesus. Now he's going back to Ethiopia and it seems like a clear conclusion that there's not going to be a local church waiting for the Ethiopian or the Ethiopian in Ethiopia. So there's going to be a time where this eunuch is not yet associating with a local church. But he's still in fellowship with Jesus universally, despite his inability to have fellowship with the local church. Something that I think reflects well on this eunuch, and I think is maybe a part of why he was trustworthy to go back uh, to Ethiopia um, in this condition without receiving further teaching. Remember, Ethiopia is it's about a thousand miles away from Jerusalem. And he is like the head of the queen of Ethiopia's treasury. So here's somebody with an enormous amount of responsibility. And he's taking this huge trip to do what? To be with God's people where they are, to have fellowship with them, to work with them. The Ethiopian eunuch, this is somebody who gets it. He understands that God's people aren't just meant to be on an island all on their own. He's made incredible sacrifices to be in fellowship with God's people way over in Jerusalem. So the eunuch understood the importance of having fellowship with other believers. And that was a priority to him. And he was willing to make sacrifices to do it. Another thing that reflects well on the eunuch is he was traveling away from Jerusalem and what was he doing in his chariot? He was reading God's word, wanting to learn more. He was hungry. And not only was he reading God's word, when a complete stranger comes up to the chariot and says, hey, what are you reading? What does he do? He says, I'm reading, well, he said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? The humility to be teachable. He wanted to learn more and he wanted to be taught. The Ethiopian had all of the components of a truly good and genuine faith and a pure heart. The Ethiopian, when he heard the gospel, he was in fellowship with Jesus. He would go back to Ethiopia and would begin sharing the message with others as well. But at the time was not in local fellowship with other Christians. Let's look at Demetrius in 3 John. 3 John's just one chapter, so it's not 3 John chapters 9 through 12. Uh, it's 3 John, just verses 9 through 12. But here John is writing to a church. And in verse 9, we'll pick up there. John says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words. Not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God, and the one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself, and we add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. So we have a church here that is in in a sense, being run by this man, Diotrephes, who loves to be first. What is he doing that John is upset with? Well, it's not just that he loves to be first, but he's taken it upon himself to determine who gets to be involved with the church here. And in verse 12, it seems implied that Demetrius has been a victim 
of Diotrephes' self-exaltation. Was Demetrius, even if Diotrephes had rejected him, was Demetrius now out of universal fellowship with Jesus? You need to think, when it says that he's putting people out of the church in verse 10, is he putting people out of the universal church? Does he even have the power or authority to even do that? No, he's not putting people out of the universal church. That's, it's not possible for a person to do that. He's putting people out of the local church. And again, a local church can make mistakes, and mistakes were being sinfully made in this context. So Demetrius, again, here's somebody who with a situation seemingly out of his control is not being allowed to have fellowship with the church because of diatrophies. And what John says is, this person has a good testimony from the truth. This person ought to be in connection with this local church and their work and identity. But Diotrephes is not allowing that to happen. And so it was Diotrephes, ironically, being received by the church and tolerated by the church locally. He was the one who was not in universal fellowship with Jesus. And Demetrius, being put out of the church, was the one in universal fellowship with Jesus, but now no longer in local fellowship with the church. Turn to 2 Timothy Chapter 2. This will be the concluding principle at uh, the conclusion of the lesson here. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. So Paul's writing to Timothy and he says, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows who are his. Everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. God knows who are his. One of the things we talked about last week is the more we understand the nature of the church in the Bible, we understand we can't make broad generalizations. And people say, you know what the problem with the church of Christ is? Or you know what the problem with churches of Christ is? You can't make a generalization like that if you understand the nature of the church and what these terms mean. Because what you're saying in truth is, you know what the problem with all Christians everywhere is? It's like, well, of course there's problems with Christians. Read through the New Testament and immediately in 1 Corinthians, when you begin getting into the epistles, there's some pretty serious problems that the Corinthian church was having. Churches have problems. But we understand we can't just make broad generalizations. But here's what we can do in verse 19. We can make sure that with one another we are keeping each other accountable. Those who name the name of the Lord are to abstain from wickedness. So we don't know the condition of the universal church. We don't know what every Christian in every place is doing. But what we need to do is make sure that those who name the name of the Lord are abstaining from wickedness. So think about the churches we've looked at thus far. Think about Demetrius and Diotrephes. Would it be responsible of us as a local church that we let anybody come and be a part of the work here without having a conversation or asking questions about where they're coming from or whether or not they're even saved in the first place. Scripturally, what we see is that is completely irresponsible. There are those in Scripture who are in the church and who are not in the church locally, and the local church has a responsibility to make sure that those who are working members of a local body are a part of the universal body of Christ. And it's on the basis of that fellowship that Christians work together in common identity and common work. 
So in verse 19, you know, you may be here and there may be sins of omission or commission. There may be sins you're committing in doing something that God forbids, that you are not abstaining from wickedness and you need help from other Christians to get these sins out of your life. And the local church is given as a gift to those who desire the accountability to be pure and to be holy in service to God. But maybe you're here and there's a sin of omission, that God has told you to do something and you're unwilling to do it. God calls Christians to associate together and work together. God doesn't call Christians to be passive observers, to simply be a part of assemblies when a church assembles together. These Christians, their life did not fully constitute their work together. Their lives were to be filled with Jesus. But a component of that life was pursuing fellowship. Without pursuing fellowship with other Christians, there's so much of the New Testament that simply it doesn't apply to you because you're not following it. Romans 12, rip it out of your Bible, it's gone. Ephesians chapter 4, rip it out of your Bible, it's gone. God calls us to work together as a part of our relationship with him. And so if you're here this morning, if there's anything that we can do for you as a local church, please be willing to let us know so we can help you and be the people God has called us to be together as we stand and sing our invitation song.